was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, Tony-nominated Broadway choreographer Randy Skinner. That nomination came from 2015's Dames at Sea, but his other choreography credits include the long-running White Christmas, the revival of 42nd Street, State Fair, Ain't Broadway Grand, and After the Night and the Music. He was also the dance captain on the original 42nd Street and many subsequent touring productions, and his performing credits include The Kenley Players, Lady Be Good at Encores, The Tour of a Chorus Line, and more. You can currently see his choreography work in Cheek to Cheek, a review of the movie music of Irving Berlin that is reopening the legendary York Theatre. You can see the show through January 2nd. It's the perfect holiday entertainment. And now, without further ado, Randy Skinner. So, um, I'd love to start with our interview by starting with Cheek to Cheek, which you're working on right now at the York Theatre. And so, how did the idea for that first happen? Well, I was thinking about what I wanted to maybe do, and uh, Irving Berlin is my favorite composer, and then I also have a great passion for uh, movies, Hollywood, all all movies, plays, uh, dramas, comedies, and musicals, of course. So um, I thought about combining those two ideas, and that's exactly how the uh, idea started, and then I called Barry Kleinbort, who is a, a colleague and a friend, and told him about the idea, so we had uh, several meetings and discussed what a good format would be, and then um, I came up with a list of songs that I particularly knew would be wonderful to dance to, and we wanted to include uh, all of the songs that Mr. Berlin had been nominated for Academy Awards, and then we also gave the guidelines that, uh, and a lot of people come into the show thinking they're going to hear certain songs that they love. But every song that's in the show had to be written specifically for a film. A lot of uh, Berlin's movies had trunk songs in them or had songs that were interpolated from earlier periods. So everything that you see in Cheek to Cheek or hear in Cheek to Cheek were songs specifically written for that particular movie. And then that was a good guidepost to have. Yeah, yeah. And I know that this show was originally supposed to happen before COVID. And so during the uh, quarantine, were you meeting about it or were there changes made or how did that work? We actually, yeah, the show was pretty set by when we were going to do it two years ago. It was supposed to be the closing show of the York 50th anniversary season. So when that all fell apart due to COVID, then we thought it would be a great idea whenever things did reopen to be the opening show for the York, and uh, and that's how it all started. And of course, everybody were like across the board in theater was just waiting for things to get back. And so uh, we got to go ahead, and 
abided by all the union rules, of course, which everybody is doing. So it was uh, challenging and tricky, but we uh, we did it. Um, we're up and running, and everybody has stayed healthy, thank goodness, and oh. uh, and is doing fine at this point. Oh, that's great. And um, do you think that Berlin's um, movie songs are separate, or are there ways in which they're different from the songs he wrote for the stage? No, no, he just, he knew how to write a great melody, and so whether it appeared in a stage or whether it was Tin Pan Alley, a pop song, or written for movies, you know, Irving was uh, such a tunesmith, Mr. Berlin, and uh, and his lyrics are deceptively simple, but they have such heartfelt meaning, and the thing about Mr. Berlin is that he just believed everything he wrote. He uh, wrote really from the soul and the heart, and I think that's why I respond to him. I, I love his his transparency, his simplicity, and of course the melodies and, and his rhythm. He wrote three movies for Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and then went on to write two more for Fred alone. And uh, he understood rhythm and he understood dancing. He wrote earlier uh, in his early part of his career, he wrote for one of the first major dance teams uh, by, by the name of Vernon and Irene Castle. They were a married couple that were uh, did Broadway shows and really were uh, a big force in, in the entertainment industry back then. And uh, she was a real trendsetter. Whatever she did as far as wearing clothes or what she did with her hairstyles then went across the nation. And uh, and so she was, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of forgotten names today, like a lot of people are, but they were big, big stars. And, and Irving Berlin wrote for them. And then, of course, one of his earliest songs was Alexander's Ragtime Band. And that's just full of rhythm and ragtime. So this is a man and a composer who understood dancing and understood rhythm. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned uh, Ginger Rogers, and that brings me to ask you, you worked with Ginger Rogers on a production of Babes in Arms, where she was the director, you were the choreographer. And so what was that like to actually meet her and and work with her? Oh, it was it was a wonderful period of my life. Yeah, um, we were brought together by, uh, we both had the same manager at that time, and so he kind of put us together, and we just uh, really liked each other enormously and then stayed in touch after that project, and it was just uh, one of those moments where you go, wow, I'm sitting with Ginger Rogers on a couch talking about a show or talking about life, as we did many times, and and it was just uh, one of those great gifts that happens to people, you know, that uh, you get to meet somebody that you've idolized and then get to be friends and, and get to see uh, very different sides to everybody. You know, not just the glamour and the Hollywood movie mystique, but you get to know those people as real people when you get to know them and work with them. So it was just a wonderful chapter, wonderful chapter in my life. And what was some of the advice she gave to you or insights she had or anything like that? Well, it was interesting. She, uh, when we were working on the show together, because I was also in the show, I played uh, the part of Valentine uh, Lamar. And uh, at one point, Karen Ziemba, we did the show like two or three times. And at one point, Karen Ziemba was uh, in the show also. So we got to dance together and play opposite each other, which was great fun. And uh, she used to, uh, she would like look at her watch and she would go, I think this number needs to be about three and a half minutes. And of course, that comes from movies and television where everything is so timed. And so uh, it was really interesting to, to, to work that way and to think, OK, we need to trim this or this is going on too long. So that was really good advice. She also, I wrote two things in my script. Uh, she said, uh, 
think you're the tallest person on the stage. Uh, it was just one of those wonderful images that she probably reminded herself when she was uh, acting and performing. So I wrote that down in my script when we were talking and she had given me that direction. And uh, and then she had told me something specifically about me uh, with my eyes. I have uh, I have eyes that are kind of be considered on the larger side. And she said, learn to keep your eyes at half mast. Uh, and I wrote that down in my script. And uh, I thought that was really uh, a really interesting tidbit, again, coming from great film technology and television where the camera shows so much. But uh, if you do have large eyes, they can pop on stage too. You can uh, so she she those two things. Think you're the tallest person on stage, and learn to keep your eyes at half mast. I thought that was uh, really wonderful advice from uh, a true movie legend. You know. Oh yes, yes. And so before we uh, go back to the beginning of your uh, life and career, I'd love to just ask, what do you love about working at the York Theater because it is such a great place, and I'm so glad that it's back. It is. They are a wonderful group of people that try to give you everything you need. They're they're just so giving, and uh, the fact that we're in a new space that that had some challenges, but we had really great management. Uh, and uh, the 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 man that was acting as general manager, Aaron Sims, he made sure that everything was running smoothly, and we had a great team on board. Because moving into a new space is always complicated. But I will say, the new space, uh, the stage is a lot larger than what the uh, original York space is. So oh. it it actually uh, worked in our benefit to be in this new space because the stage is absolutely glorious, and there's a lot of wing space. So our show, because of having so much dancing fit really well into this theater at St. Jean's Cathedral, it's uh, it's quite a nice theater. It's uh, I think people who see it for the first time are quite amazed by it when you enter and you see the rake of the audience and then you do see how large the stage is. It really does feel like a small Broadway house. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very intimate and yet it's got the space to do quite a sizable show. There's actually, people would be quite surprised to learn there's an orchestra pit in this theater because the theater was built and it was originally the, the home of uh, a company called Opera di Capo. So they did uh, operas in that theater and uh, the musicians were in the pit. We have it covered over so that we can get closer to the audience with our staging. And I was asking the other day, like, no, are you talking about a pit that can hold eight musicians? And I said, no, they've had like 20 musicians in that pit. Oh. So it's, uh, it, I would love to see it sometime when I'm over there and, and it's uh, open. It would be really interesting to see the theater from the perspective of having the uh, pit uncovered. Yeah. So it, it, it's quite a unique space sitting here in New York City that a lot of people have never been in before. Yeah. So when they come to see Cheek to Cheek, they might be experiencing the theater for the first time. Oh, yes. I'm looking forward to, to seeing Cheek to Cheek. In later this month. So I'd love to um, go back to the beginning and ask how you first um, became interested in theater. Well, it's probably like your story. You know, I had a mom and dad who were very into the arts and uh, they exposed me to many things. And so I grew up watching movies a lot and going to movies with them and they took me to stage shows. But the unique thing is that uh, they put me in dance class at age four, which was uh, not exactly happening back in the <laughs> mid 50s, particularly with, with boys. Yeah. So, um, but I think the story is, if I remember correctly, that uh, my mom's best friend who lived in the neighborhood 
her little girl was taking uh, dance lessons, and so I guess we went along. And it's kind of like the the story from uh, a chorus line, Mike's story, where uh, he tags along with his sister, and then he's the one who stays. So that's I don't have a lot of memories of that, but uh, but that's what they always told me. It was kind of a neighborhood thing where the two moms got together and they enrolled us in dance class, and I obviously stayed, and it. And the other thing interesting about my mom and dad, and I've spoken about this before with people, is that they not only put me into class, and uh, I liked it, so they kept me going, but they also knew when to have conferences with the teachers and say, like, okay, do we need to move him on now to another studio, to another teacher? And uh, and they would all confer, and, and even the teacher would say, we've done as much as we can, and we now need to find him uh, another studio to go to. So that that was quite remarkable when it happened. Um, so that's how it all started. Now, of course, if I hadn't liked it, they would never have forced me to go or stay. Uh, but they were my parents were really in touch with both my brother and myself about giving us opportunities to explore what we wanted to, and then if something didn't take, well, then move on to the next thing and try yeah. something new. But uh, it really stuck with me. So I, I loved it, and I would spend all weekend at the dance studio and. They would drop me off and pick me up, and um, so whatever I needed, they were there for. And it's uh, very lucky when you have parents like that. I think today parents are much more in touch with things that are happening, and schools certainly are yeah. having arts programs and things like that that didn't exist before. So, uh, but yeah, luck of the draw. I was born into a family that uh, really paid attention and and gave my brother and I every opportunity that we wanted to try. Yeah, and can you remember what? some of those old movies were that you saw growing up and how they influenced you? Well, I really took to Fred and Ginger. Oh, you know, yeah. somehow when I stumbled on them on television or saw it on the movie channel, um, there was just something about those early RKO black and white movies that spoke to me. So it is quite a kind of fortuitous. And years later, I got to meet Ginger. I never met Fred, but Ginger and I certainly had long talks about Fred. And uh, and I think then when I got older, I realized that I was built like Fred, that probably even when I was younger, who knows what was going on in my head. But often your role models, you relate to a role model because of your physicality, either being like them or your energy that you possess. And like a lot of times when you talk to male dancers, if they're on the muscular side, you'll, you'll find that they kind of emulate the Gene Kellys of the world. And then maybe guys that are a little quirkier or what you would call character actors, often you'll find their role models are like Donald O'Connor, who is more of a character type, or Ray Bolger. Um, you know, I definitely was very much in touch with the way Fred moved and, and his look. And because he was lanky, I was taller than Fred. Fred was only around five nine, five nine and a half, where I was six feet. But I was definitely built like him and, uh, and on the slender side. So just, yeah, something about Fred and Ginger, their partnering, the way they related to each other, the way, you know, the, the interesting thing about Fred and Ginger is they never really played to the camera. They were either playing to themselves or Fred would often look what I call a three-quarter gaze down at the floor. And when you watch his movies, they did not play into the camera where people like Gene Kelly, Eleanor Powell, equally wonderful, equally brilliant, they often played directly to the camera. And I think there was something that I picked up on that I really found uh, watching Fred and Ginger. It was like being brought into their secretive world. And uh, there was something that spoke to me about that. 
And uh, so I suppose that's what grabbed hold. So yes, and then of course I love all the MGM color musicals. And then I met Gower later on in my career. Yeah. And uh, when I went back and rewatched all of his movies with Marge, uh, I, I can see there was a reason that he picked up on me and my energy. And uh, and some of his friends talked about that after the fact when they said that when they met me, they would say, "Oh, it made total sense why Gower picked you and to work with." And uh, and it's often just again about the energy, the shared energy in the room, or your demeanor, or again your physicality. If you match theirs and how you move. And I didn't really know a lot about Gower before I met him. But then when I did watch the movies afterward, I thought, yeah, I, this makes total sense. I, <laughs> I get I get why this happened. Yeah. Yeah. And Gower Champion was, of course, a famous example of a famous dancer turned great choreographer. But at this point in time when you were growing up, did you have the sense that you might want to choreograph one day? Or did that not come till later? No. It did not come to my mind at all. Uh, I know it does with a lot of people. When I read interviews about other people, even in their earlier dancing life, they, they have a goal and they know that's where they want to end up. It, it was not in my mind at all. I did it in college. I did a lot of choreography in college. And so uh, I knew that I had an ability and I knew that I had a gift for seeing things and being able to put numbers together. And listen to music and read a score, all of that kind of thing. But no, when I hit New York, it was really just the intention of performing. And then uh, it really all happened because of my association with 42nd Street and meeting Gower. And uh, and that's a very interesting story, which I'll tell you, because uh, um, I was doing a show, uh, I was doing a musical version, uh, the first incarnation about the life of Al Jolson. And it was called Jolie. That was the name of the show. There had been several uh, t attempts since then to musicalize Al Jolson's life. But this was the first, and I was in it. And then uh, right after I had committed to that show, I had gotten a call from another wonderful lady that I had met in my earlier days, Ann Miller, a great dancing star at MGM, as you know. And uh, she was doing a show called Sugar Babies. And uh, she was going to go out on the road with it for six months. And she said, I would love for you to be one of my boys in the show. And uh, I had already committed to the Jolson show. And the Jolson show was actually trying out at a theater on Long Island. So that meant that I could stay in New York, live at home, just drive out and commute to the show and come back. The Jolson show was supposed to move into Broadway. And of course, Sugar Babies was going on the road for six months and then intended to come into Broadway also. So I stayed with the Jolson show, and uh, long story short, Jolson closed out of town and never came in from Long Island, and Sugar Babies came in and ran for years. So I thought, oh, gosh, what a choice, you know, that I made, and, and I was kind of like, oh, oh this is uh, really kind of hard to take. But then my connection to Gower Champion actually came from the Al Jolson musical. So, you know, if I had not stayed with the Jolson show, I would not have met the uh, dancer ranger who was on the Jolson project, who ended up to be on 42nd Street. So when he and Gower were talking, Gower said, you know, I need a guy on the team. And uh, Don Johnston said, I know the perfect boy for you to meet. And so it all, you know, it's out of something that I thought might have been uh, a choice that was not so great, uh, came a choice and, a, and an opportunity that really did change my life, because then that yeah. led into a whole nother wearing another hat as choreographer and teacher and all that, that kind of thing. And that was due to my association with Gower and to 42nd Street. So it's a good lesson. It's a good lesson that you never know where the, how the dots are going to connect in your life until sometimes after they've been formed, you know? Yeah.
And so before the uh, Al Jolson show, you did a lot of work at the Kenley Players. And so how'd you first get involved with that? With Yes, well, John Kenley was a great empresario in Ohio, and uh, and I was from Ohio, from Columbus, Ohio, and John loved hiring Ohio people for his summer shows, and he was one of the biggest in the country. You know, you played these theaters that were 4,000 seats, and he brought in the biggest stars from television and movies. So I auditioned for him when I was in college, and uh, I first worked for him as an apprentice when I was in high school and uh, worked backstage and learned a lot about the backstage business. And then when I uh, was in college, I auditioned for him and he hired me to be one of the ensemble. And so I got to uh, many times just dance with wonderful people and, and have do all these great musicals. He ran for about 10 weeks and he would basically do six musicals and four plays in the course of that summer. And you played three different cities. You know, you would go to uh, Warren, Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, and Columbus, Ohio. And it was just this mini little tour. And it was just great. That world doesn't really exist anymore. And uh, everybody talks about it. Anybody who worked for John Kenley and the Kenley Players has such great memories and great stories to tell, too. Because you really were working with the uh, the greatest stars of that time. And, and the shows went up fast. You know, you were learning them in a week. That was the old summer stock days. And often, if you were doing double duty, and sometimes you were, you would be learning a show during the daytime and then performing the show at night that was then going to kick off the next tour. So it was uh, you know, a great learning experience and, and, and wonderful people. So yeah, that, that was really my beginnings. He gave me my equity card, and I met a lot of people through that. And the interesting thing also about that, Charles, is because of getting to work with a lot of the movie people, the ones that I admired, they all saw that in me. They, they would all, invariably, they all came up to me and said, we see that you love our thing, what we do, and you love the movies, and we hope that you continue to carry on our legacy through your work or through teaching others. And so I've always tried to do that. That has really stuck in my head that they spoke to me about that. And they just wanted to make sure that their, their glorious art form would be continued. Uh, long after they were gone. so And that's what you see reflective, of course, in my work. You saw yes. that in Dames at Sea, and you'll see it in Cheek to Cheek when you see the show. It's uh, it's a real legacy that I feel honored to be a part of, and it's how I was trained. I was trained in that kind of classicism, and I love it. I really do love it. Yeah. And I would love to ask about an actor I love who you worked with, which was Gail Gordon in No, No, Nanette, which I think was your first, yes. first show that you did there. It was one of my first, yeah, it really was. Um, yeah, oh, Gail was wonderful. And, of course, everybody knew him from uh, the Lucy days and also even before that, uh, a TV series called Our Miss Brooks, which was even way before the Lucy, the Lucille Ball series. So, yeah, just a great character actor, a great company member, very giving. And uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed meeting him and being on stage with him. And he was wonderful in the part, as, as the part of Jimmy. Yeah, and... What do you think it was that made all these stars want to come to Ohio to do this? Well, John was a great guy to work for. Number one, he paid them very well. So uh, they they loved the money they were making. But it was just, again, first class. You know, when you're dealing with that size of a theater 
and you uh, you know he would always give great physical productions great sets great costumes so they were treated well you know when when you have that kind of star status and have had a career in the movies or television and then you put yourself on the line to do theater and of course a lot of people loved coming out and either uh, doing something for the first time on stage or re recapturing their earlier career. Because a lot of the people in the movies did start on the stage, and then they ended up in Hollywood and, and then worked in television and movies. So it was a combination of that. Yeah. But, uh, but it, I think it was just the first-class operation that John ran and that people had a great time. And it wasn't, also, it wasn't a long commitment, too. So you would be able to fit it into your schedule. Uh, at the most, you were really rehearsing for a week and then playing for three weeks. So it was a, a month out of your life. And they kind of, uh, I think that's very appealing. I've often said, you know, the trickiest thing with uh, Broadway is to try to get big stars to commit for a year. Yeah. Most producers try to get you locked into a year. And that's very difficult for a lot of people. You have to be at the right time in your life or wanting to do it at the right time for a star to commit that. In London, it's quite different because of their industry being all in one city. Um, I just read an article about that uh, that was talking about how in London, stars can do a show at night but then film during the daytime and make both things work. We have a harder time in here because a lot of things are filmed out on the West Coast and not in New York. So it's um, it makes it a little bit... So that's why in London, you can sometimes you'll see a star do a show for maybe three months over there or six months. Whereas here, they they really do try to get a star's commitment for a year. And I can understand that from a producer's point of view, why you would do that. Yeah, yeah. And um, among the great sort of figures that the Kenley players were Leslie Cutler and Rudy Toronto, who worked on a lot of the shows. And I'd love to ask you about them and how they were as director and choreographer. Yes, they were great. Um, Leslie uh, lived a block away from me, so long after our Kenley days, we would see each other in the park, Riverside Park out here, and he he just knew how to do it. You know, it, it kind of reminds me, Charles, those days are very similar to what you have to do when you put up a show for New York City Encores, oh. City Center Encores, because you're really, uh, you're going in there right out of anybody who works and does a show either as a performer or as a creative person knows that it is fast and furious at encores. And I think anybody of a certain age that has done summer stock, that, that reminds them of them. They go, wow, this is like the old summer stock days where you, you come in the first day and, and seven days later you're doing run-throughs and in two more days you're having audiences. So um, you just have to know really how to put up a show that quickly. And so you do your homework. And uh, the city center, of course, um, they they have studios right there. So we always, if you're on the creative team, you get a studio at your convenience for a week ahead of rehearsal time. So creative teams go in and map things out and, and plan the show, particularly if it's a big dance show, you get in with your assistants and you start creating the work. And I do a lot of it in my apartment also. But that's like Leslie and Rudy. That's how they had to do it. In the old yeah. summer stock days, you would uh, you would be working at home at night and you would be creating work for the next day because you don't have time to really sit around and let it, let it unfold on its feet. You have to have a plan and you have to have a schedule yeah. and you have to really stick to that when you only have a week to put up a show. So Leslie and Rudy were, were masters at that. And they knew each other so well that they spoke the same language. And because you're also on a big musical, uh, you're sharing rehearsal time. Yeah. So you have yeah. to really have to map it out carefully. Like, when do you have the dancers? When do you have the singers? 
when you have the actors. So it's not only an artistic thing that has to be planned out. It's also a logistics call where you have to really map out the schedule. So, uh, and then your stage managers help with that. They, they, they're good at keeping tabs at that. So yeah, it's very different. A lot of people that, uh, try it for the first time uh they go wow this is this is a different ball game than having five weeks of rehearsal and all of that so i like it i kind of like the challenge i wouldn't want to do it every single day of my life but every once in a while when something comes along and you're on the fast track it's kind of a reminder like yes you can do this and you just have to put that hat back on and, and think a little bit differently yeah yeah and i know that you um sometimes direct when you choreograph but sometimes you don't and when you don't how do you sort of work out that logistical balance yeah you sit down with the director of course and you uh you if it's a new show of course it's very different than a revival because a revival dictates pretty much what the numbers are and what in the past has been danced to uh so it, it again it's sharing space and knowing how to uh be on the same page and I've done that. I've done both. As you said, I've, I've directed and choreographed both and I've worked with other directors. And, uh, it, it helps when you're all, all on the same page and, and agree with things. And, uh, I've had wonderful collaborations with Walter Bobby and John Rando and, and many other people. But, uh, and also when it's a big dance driven show, uh, a smart director kind of knows okay, I've hired the right choreographer, let them do their thing. And uh, so it's kind of nice when you have that trust in each other. And I uh, obviously trust the director to put up the book scenes. So, And I've had great collaborations that way where you're in separate rooms and eventually you come together and then you discuss what needs to be discussed. Usually what happens uh, is you have to think about the editing process, particularly with encores. That's always happened. Every encore show, you put it up and then there's always those meetings after the first run through. Okay, we need to you know trim down here. Because with, with some of the older shows, you never quite know what your running length is until you get it all up. And you have to always be paying attention to the running time of a show. So that's usually where you all come together in that process is uh, where do we need to trim both text, singing, dancing, everything, all the departments pulled together. And I, I enjoy that, too. The challenge of, OK, we've got a number mounted, but now I need to trim out so many eights. And how can we make this happen? And uh, I like those kind of challenges. But yeah, collaboration is wonderful. Theater is about collaboration. Yeah. So it's bouncing off of each other and uh, and then trusting each other to uh, really always talk and have those communication channels open. Yeah, yeah. And so um, initially after your work at the Kenley Players, when did you decide to move to NYC? Yeah, I pretty much moved after uh, after I graduated from college because my Kenley days, my early Kenley days were all during college. It was always during the summer of colleges. And then the nice thing about John Kenley, he was exceedingly loyal. And that was a great lesson that uh, it was nice to observe that because I like to look at myself as a loyal person. And you try to, particularly in a rough business like theater is, you try to watch out for people that you like and that you know do a good job. So I learned that from John. And so often I would pick up the phone way after I moved to New York and say, you know, John, what are you doing this summer? I'd love to come home and visit my family and do a show for you. And, and he was great about that. He would always try to find a place for you and bring you back to Ohio. Because, again, like I said earlier, he loved Ohio and he loved Ohio people. So, um, yeah, it's kind of one of those things where uh, – you just uh, you, you pull together and you try to watch out. And I moved right after my graduation from college. I went on tour with a play 
right after I graduated, um, uh, Don Amici, again, a wonderful star from the past, and he was uh, touring in a play called Once More with Feeling, and there was a role for a juvenile uh, in it. And so I auditioned in Columbus, Ohio, and because uh, we were going to play Columbus. And so uh, they, they found me in Columbus, and I went on tour with Don Amici in that show. And then uh, right after that closed, I then moved to New York City. Yeah. So it was pretty much pretty much right directly from college. Yeah. Yeah. And so we talked a little bit about 42nd Street and Gower Champion. And I'm sure everyone must ask you this, but what was your sort of experience like or take on the famous opening night curtain speech? And what was that day like? Did you have? Yes, well, there was very few people who knew. There were only uh, several of us that had gotten the call, myself being one. So we were asked to keep it very quiet. And so I, I went in knowing what had happened. I think I got the call maybe around 2 p.m. that day. And uh, so, yeah, it was interesting for me then to watch the show that night, knowing that I had all of this news inside me. And nobody knew that David Merrick was going to announce it from the stage, so that was a surprise to me. I hadn't even been told that. But I did know about Gower's death. And I also, it wasn't uh, a huge surprise to me because I had been with the man yeah. uh, prior for six weeks. And so I, I could see some of the decline. And then when we got back to New York after our tryout at the Kennedy Center, uh, he missed a lot of rehearsals. So I, I, I put two and two together and knew that, okay, Gower was dealing with something very serious here. So when I got the call that afternoon, the on opening night, um, I, I can't say that I was honestly totally shocked by it because I, I could see what was happening. Yeah. But this, the cast certainly was shocked. And also, you know, when you're performing, um, you're in your own world a, a lot. You have so much going on and you're on stage. And so I don't even know if the cast even thought a lot about it when, when Gower was not around during the final tech previews. If it registered like, oh, gosh, I wonder what's going on here. Or if they were so busy with their own lives and getting their own opening night together and worrying about their own tracks, uh, they might have been, uh, you know, somewhat oblivious to what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah. So to many of them, I think it was a huge, huge shock. And like, oh, my God, Gower's gone. Yeah. But if you were close to him and had lived daily with him like I was and, and my coworker, Karen Baker, the two of us, we, we knew that this was uh, somehow impending here. But, uh, yeah, that was quite a night, and it certainly yeah. gave the show a big send-off, and it certainly made it front-page news, and uh, it was nice to see all the attention paid to Gower uh, on that night and how that all happened. So, you know, out of everything, something happens, and so that certainly propelled the show forward, and that was, uh, that was a positive, and I think... Uh, People said Gower is watching from above with a big smile on his face. So uh, it certainly uh, it certainly did a, a nice thing for uh, for Gower. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned uh, David Merrick and his curtain speech. And what were your own interactions like with him? And then again, of course, on State Fair, although he was much older at that time. Yes, and he had uh, he had his own health problems during State Fair. Uh, yeah, after Forty Second Street, of course, became an enormous hit. 
So then um, I certainly traveled the world with David to put up the other companies along with Karen. And, and uh, so I got to know him quite well and became uh, pretty friendly with him, pretty close to him. Uh, David was somebody who was tough to deal with, as anybody would know or who had read anything about him. But he, uh, I've worked with a lot of those kinds of personalities. And what I have learned over the years is that they really do uh, test you. They, they, try to, they try to do everything they can to, to uh, get under your skin sometimes. But if you stand up to somebody in a very respectful way, then you often break through and then your whole relationship changes with them because so many people do cower with people that are either uh, somewhat bullies or, or uh, bombastic personalities. And often, uh, sometimes people delight in that, uh, doing that. But uh, I just have always felt that it's almost like they, they want you to stand up to them in a way and speak the truth. But it has to be done in a very respectful and in a, in a, in a certain way. But uh, I became very close to David and really enjoyed his company immensely and, and, and enjoyed that experience. I learned a lot from him. It's an education that you really can't buy, you know, traveling the world and seeing things. And it was first class with David. That's the other thing. The, those days are kind of gone with the expense of everything. But, boy, when you worked on a David Merrick show and you were part of the team and then you were part of a show that was a big hit like 42nd Street, it was just first class hotels, first class travel. You were you were treated like royalty, and because uh, he knew that that was important to keep the people happy and to to keep his team happy, because then you got the best out of them. And it was uh, wonderful days, yeah, wonderful times in my life to uh, to have that again, that chapter of uh, of the of the Gower years and and of David Merrick. Yeah, I feel very fortunate to have had the trajectory that I had with not only my early life with meeting those great stars from the movies, since I was such a movie person, and then meeting David and Gower and having that side, uh, a real theatrical side of people that were uh, were just as equal as the movie. And of course, Gower bridged both gaps with movies and stage. So uh, yeah, I got the best of everything kind of at the tail end of when everything was changing. Yeah. And so about uh, 42nd Street, you mentioned that you've staged it many, many times in many different places. And so what do you think is the magic of it, that it works anywhere? Well, it's a timeless story, you know, um, people uh, having a dream and then having that dream come true and that never grows old with the public. And uh, and then, of course, a musical is made up of songs. So the, the, the incredible Warren and Dubin music that was uh, put into 42nd Street. It's uh, it's a combination of all that. And then the fact that the original production was again with David Merrick first class all the way. So you were, you were really presenting something that uh, with that size of a show back then uh, really was impressive to people. Then the funny thing is when you flash forward to 2001 and the revival, you we had meetings about that the prior to when it was going to happen. And uh, I said, well, this is really interesting. Um, 42nd Street in 1980 was considered one of the biggest shows that anybody had ever seen. But now we're in 2001 and the world has changed. And that comes from another very interesting lesson, which I know you will find fascinating. One of the first shows that I saw as a high school student when I was coming on a field trip was Mame. I didn't see Angela Lansbury in the role because she had left. I saw the replacement, Janice Page. And and I went home back to Columbus, Ohio, thinking I will never see any 
thing bigger than this, the original MAME company. And uh, so then you flash forward to 1983. I'm living in New York, and Angela brings back MAME, uh, a revival of MAME, and it is it is replicated to a T. Even some of her uh, co-stars that she performed with in the 60s are in this production. Uh, costuming, musical staging, blocking, sets, everything was an exact replica of the original MAME. And it did not work. It, it did not, it was not a success. And, uh, now this was before Angela had her great television success with Murder, She Wrote. So she was not a household name at that point from her TV career. And I, I heard from friends who were involved with the show that she was very upset, you know, backstage, like, why are people not coming to see this? But when I saw it, Charles, I sat there in the audience and I thought, this cannot be the show that I saw as a high school student. It no longer looked big. It did not have the impact on me that it had when I was back seeing it in the 60s. So that lesson really stuck. And I thought, well, now what is it? The world has moved forward. Times have changed. So then when we were having our meetings about 42nd Street, I thought, yes, I'm all in favor of a revival. This is great. But we have to do something different with it. And we have to... uh, you just can't put out what was done in 1980 because it's not going to be the same audience. It's not going to be the same impact. And so that, that steered a lot of our choices. And we had producers who also understood that and wanted to, uh, to bring out a, a new, a new 42nd street to a new generation of people. So, um, it was a great lesson. I, I've spoken about it when I teach in colleges that, uh, the world changes and things move forward and, uh, you have to really always pay attention to that and what is happening and what seemed big prior years is not going to be so big at this point in life because what's happening in society. And now we're in a very different time period yeah. with all sorts of challenges and sorts of problems that people are trying to deal with and figure out solutions to. And uh, I've been in very interesting talks about uh, just generally how do you take a classic show? Now, a lot of it is if you have a big star like Bette Midler or Hugh Jackman coming in with uh, Music Man, then that overrides a lot of things because you have the star wattage that alone uh, creates a great box office. But if you're using, if you're putting up a show that involves your great theater actors and your Broadway people that maybe don't have the cross the name the box office saleability then how do you create some of these classic titles? How do you keep them alive but have to rethink them in a way that makes them more affordable and more producible today? Because those are large casts. When you look back at the original programs and the original original librettos of shows and scores, you see what those cast lists were. They often had separate singing choruses, separate dancing choruses. And uh, now it's like, how do we keep these classic titles alive but make them producible for the foreseeable future, which what 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 COVID is happening to us, and also the economy, and there's a lot of challenges that we're all facing. But these titles need to be seen. Yeah. So uh, I agree. Yeah. Interesting discussions. Yeah. And is there a title that you would want to bring back, either a rare one for encores or a more mainstream one for Broadway or? Gosh, you know, that's always a good question. You know, people talk about what hasn't been revived. And of course, revivals now, you know, to me, revivals are like, you haven't seen the show in 30 or 40 years, but now people bring things back after 10 years. And that's also a, a reminder to me that yes, every 10 years, there's new audiences, and there's new things happening. So, uh, 
I have to think about that. Like, what's out there that I'd like to do? Um, you know, White Christmas played a tour every year until COVID interrupted us. We were heading into our 17th year two years ago. Um, and that's a, that's a title again that's classic. But we were, we were in discussions about how can we trim? You know, how can we keep this going economically when you only have a finite holiday season to make money off of a show? That's another set of challenges when you don't have an open-ended run. So uh, we were we were doing fine uh, for the first 17 years, but we, we all could see that things were changing with the economy and uh, the challenges that were setting in. So we, now we didn't have to deal with it because COVID shut everything down. But uh, if that opens up again, that will be discussed about, okay, now if we want to send this tour back out, where can we not sacrifice the quality, but how can we make it economically feasible? That happened with the last tour of 42nd Street uh, several years ago. Uh, a big tour went out, and uh, and there were challenges with that, trying to make what we call the numbers work yeah. behind the scenes. How do, how do you make it all work? And uh, it was it was proving to be a big challenge. And uh so yeah, these big monster shows. It's uh, and I, I I'm going to enjoy the challenge when somebody brings me something. Uh, I will enjoy that challenge of sitting down and going, how can you honor the classicism of the show and what the original creative team intended, and not reinvent it to a degree that's just totally a hundred and eighty degree a different show. But how do you take a show that's beloved, but then but then face the challenges that we all have today? Yeah, I'm looking forward to that when that ever happens. Yeah. Yeah. And to be more uh, specific about the 42nd Street Revival, what were some of the changes that you made or ways in which you sort of changed the tone? Yes, we added uh, we added quite a few musical moments to that. We honored we honored the pieces that uh, were iconic, of course, because that's Forty uh, Second Street is such a world famous show. Yeah. So we sat down and decided, you know, what needed to be honored and included. And then I was pretty much given free reign. So uh, and that's why, for example, I was able to uh, be considered for a Tony nomination on that revival because you have to have a certain percentage of the staging be new to the revival. If yeah. you're uh, if you're doing too much of the uh, original choreography, then you're not considered eligible. So, uh, and that that always uh, comes up with every revival. So uh, there was uh, so much new to it. So the actual choreography itself was new, but then we had additional numbers that had never been in 1980 before, and so that that made it a whole new experience, uh, also for for new audiences. And it, it was a much bigger show. Uh, the boys had more to do. My male dancers had more to do in that show. Uh, it was it was uh, more slanted towards the female dancers in 1980. And then in 2001, we, uh, the guys had, uh, a heavier show, which was made it more balanced, which was nice. And, uh, and so, yeah, that. And then, of course, the, uh, the big staircase edition at the end of the show was, uh, something that I hadn't thought of, but uh, everybody wanted to have a bigger ending. And, uh, I kind of was not sure about it. And then, uh, then that led to interesting discussions about, cause originally, uh, the concept is Billy Lawler. In the in the story ballet of Forty Second Street, the character of Billy Lolly Billy Lawler is the one who gets killed, and then the number ends very quickly after that. Uh, so when when they were kind of all browbeating me to come up with a whole new ending for the number, I said, "Well, you know, we can certainly return and do a big joyous celebration of Forty Second Street, but then you can't." Uh, have Billy Lawler <laughs> get killed and then have Peggy turn around and be thrilled about it. 
that wouldn't be great for her character or her storyline. <laughs> so uh, we rerouted that story a little bit for the revival so that we could then have Billy and Peggy be very celebratory about returning to Times Square and, uh, and dancing. You know, life moves on. So, uh, so yeah, those were kind of things that you had to think through so that it made sense. So, again, like my earlier analogy, the dots connect. So, yeah, so that was, um, and we had a producer on the revival that had a lot of money. So, again, when you have the kind of finances that uh, were being, were backing that revival, you were able to... uh, to let your imagination kind of go wild and, and be able to create things that uh, that money can buy and pay for. Because everything's expensive, as you well know, in New York and Broadway. That's why it's so uh, such a challenging business is, is the cost of it all and the unions. And that's why a lot of shows go to London first. They try out in London because it is, it is much more economical to, uh, to put up a show in London than it is in New York. And um, this is a sort of a trade secret that I don't know if you want to give away, but I think it will be interesting for people to hear. How do you sort of run auditions or what do you look for in auditions? Yeah, no, it's um, we have uh, people love auditioning for myself or my associates when they're running the the room. Um, We're very kind people. All of my team, it comes from the top. And so anybody who works underneath me is the same kind of attitude. We're very patient. Um, We have a real system in place of how to make people feel that they're giving their best. And uh, and uh, I, I, I like to pay attention to that when you when you are doing a show and you're going through the audition process, you can make people even if they don't get hired for the job, you can make them feel really good about what they've done or when they leave the room that they at least had a fair crack at everything and that they were seen and that they were really looked at. So we have a real system of how we handle our auditions and. Uh, but you really you go in and you you try to uh, give what you think is going to be the most challenging choreography, of course, that you're planning for the show. So you have to include that in the day, uh, because if you don't, and then you hire somebody, and then all of a sudden they can't rise to the task. Well, you know, you didn't really test them enough. So you, I, any choreographer knows that you have to give what you're going to be demanding of your dancers. And then you, if it's a period show, you have to, of course, pay attention. Do they understand the style of what you're looking for? And then, of course, the, uh, the thing about hiring an ensemble today is they have to do it all. So you're, you're always having to keep in mind the vocal ranges. And of course, that's part of the audition, the, the singing, but then also understudies. You know, people have to understudy roles out of the ensemble. So it's a lot. It's a lot. And then at the end of the day, you have to negotiate with your fellow team players, your musical director, your director, if it's a, if it's two roles, director slash choreographer. Um, so then, uh, you all have to negotiate. And often, you know, you'll get and you'll have at the end of the day, the pictures, the choreographer will have the people that uh, he or she loves. And then the musical director will turn and say, we're, we're missing a soprano. I need a first soprano. So uh, that's why I think it would be great if every performer understood how it works. Yeah. Because often somebody's in the higher pile and then at 10 till 6, they get knocked out of it because of something else that's demanded that all of a sudden you do remember oh we don't really have an understudy for this role so you have to forgo somebody to get that track filled and uh it would be i think a little bit uh more understanding for actors to know that you can be at the top of the list and then just something quite suddenly knocks you off of that higher list 
because of what you you remember you need or something else shifts in the puzzle and that happens too the puzzle shifts or you you have a first soprano that you had in the higher pile and you offer it to her and then she doesn't take the job for some reason and then you're back to then needing that so it's uh, it's it's tricky. It's very challenging, and it is. It's like I always equate it. It's like a big jigsaw puzzle that has to come together on a large musical to get what every department needs. But you look for the technique, and you look for people that also have the style, but then also that thing you can't teach, that love of performing. Yeah. That uh, And it, it's just so obvious in the room. And anybody who watches auditions and is an observer and doesn't quite understand the process, all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and they see it. They'll see it in the room like, oh my gosh, what makes that person so special? And it's because they have something they're bringing to it from their own life or their own inner spirit that just, uh, it's that love of dancing. Well, I, I discovered it when I hired Eloise Crop for my Dame to Thief to play Ruby. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't know Eloise at all. And then she walked into the first audition I, I turned to my assistant and I said, you know, who is this young lady? I mean, she is just not only a phenomenal dancer, but she has a spirit that just lights up the room. Yeah. And that's the thing you can't teach. You know, she, she connects to her love of performing, her love of dancing. And from the minute she enters the room, from the first combination to the end of the day, it, it just uh, it just is there. It's there in her inner life. So that's, that's what you also need to find in every show you need to find that group of people who just uh love what they do and it comes out of them you know because you can be a great technician and you can be a wonderful dancer singer but you lack that that quality it just doesn't come through for whatever reason yeah And so talking about uh, Eloise Crop does bring us to Dames at Sea. And so how did that idea for that happen? I know you've done a production in 2013 regionally. Yes, that's how it came about. We did it at a regional theater, and uh, I think people rediscovered the show. Uh, a lot of audiences uh, had never seen the show. I had done the show in college, so uh, and it, it really was a popular show at a certain time in life. It, it, it ran the whole circuit of summer stock and dinner theaters. Everybody was doing it. And then, like a lot of things, the title disappeared. So I was quite surprised about that. That was a little bit of an interesting thing for me to learn. Like, oh, wow, you're, I'm talking about Dames at Sea, and people don't have a clue of what I'm talking about. A lot of people, Charles, thought that Dames at Sea came after 42nd Street. They said, oh, yeah, that show, that, that came after 42nd Street, right? I said, no, 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 no. That was, uh, you know, 12 years before 42nd Street. So that was kind of interesting for them to learn that, that it, that it came first. But, uh, yeah, the regional production was just so popular that uh, the idea sprung from there, like maybe we could find a, a really small theater to do it. And, of course, the Helen Hayes was perfect because it's the smallest Broadway house in, the, in New York. And they were lucky to get it, and we were able to do a limited run there and, and have it work. And uh, and so people got to discover it and, and see it uh, for as long as we were there. And what a cast I had, you know, yes. those those six people were all just such remarkable performers and loved each other so much. And it, it was a very happy experience. And oh. even the ushers talked about it. In fact, when I go to that theater to see shows now, sometimes I'll see an usher or see the security guard out front. And, oh, their smiles just light up because they oh. all... They all loved the experience of having Dames at Sea in that theater. And they all talked about it, the backstage crew. They just said it was just kind of a unique 
unique show and, and the people that were involved. It was a, a very positive experience for everybody. Yeah. And were there specific old movies or old actors that you were sort of pastiching? Or I know, obviously, this was a revival, but were there specific things you watched or... No, because I have such a knowledge of films, having grown up with them, that, uh, you know, I might occasionally watch something for inspiration or to get my motor revved up uh, or pick a number on YouTube. But I have a, I have such a wide knowledge of the numbers that they, they really live inside me. Yeah. So uh, I can uh, I can bring something to my mind pretty easily just because I uh, of my shared love of movies it's uh you know i think a lot of people uh, i mean people love movies of course but I, when i say i love movies and i i equate it this way and you'll understand this uh if i had one day left on earth and it was to go to either a live show or go to a movie i would go to the movie because it and people find that a little surprising since i made my entire career in the theater but I just love movies, and I don't know if it's because I was introduced to them at such a young age by my parents and, and watched them as a kid growing up in my room. I had a little black and white 12-inch TV, and I was always sneaking it on way past bedtime and uh, watching a late-night movie. And uh, so I, I don't know if that's it or if it's just that kind of world that I, I love being immersed uh, just with that screen in front of me, um, and being uh, alone in the in that uh, ambiance and not having it be shared. I still love. Now, when I go to the theater, of course, it's great to be a part of an audience, and you would not be sitting watching a show by yourself. But I still love going to a movie uh, like at 11 p.m. at night at a movie theater where I know I'm going to be maybe a handful of people there because it's a weeknight and everybody else is going to bed. I, I, I love going to movies where it's very much an empty theater. So there's something about that experience of that screen and, and having it just speak directly to me uh, that I find incredibly powerful. And of course, the camera takes you exactly where you want to look. So it's a very intimate experience in film, and, and uh, so I don't know quite why I'm so passionate about movies, but I watch a movie probably pretty much every night and sometimes two, you know, yeah. on my TV. So it's, uh, it's something that speaks to me, and, and it has never left me, never left me. Yeah. And to, uh, to go back to Dames at Sea for just a minute, um, did you make changes to this, as you were talking about, for 42nd Street to update it in any way, or...? Well, yes, we added a lot of uh, different elements to Dames at Sea. Uh, the original show does not have a lot of dance music to it. And what dance music is there is, uh, is quite short. It's, it's minimal. So uh, we, we did add a lot of dance music. And uh, there were new orchestrations. Jonathan Tunick orchestrated it. He had actually done the album because the original Dames at Sea was just three pieces. Uh, I think it was piano, bass, and drums. So then when they did the cast album in 1960, either 68 or 69, I'm not sure what year it was released, uh, Jonathan Tunick did the orchestrations for that album. So he uh, he was quite delighted to come on and uh, work on the show again and revisit what he had done and then uh, add all these new dance arrangements, which were done by Rob Berman. And, uh, and Rob did new vocal arrangements, too. So, yeah, we wanted to make it feel like a new experience and a bit uh, of a bigger experience, even though we still wanted to have the cast just be six. Because then the, when you get handed the libretto of Dames at Sea, there's a, a little bit of a note in the front saying that uh, you, you have permission to add an ensemble if you would like. Oh. And, uh, and uh, I have never done that. Anytime I've done Dames at Sea, it's always been with the concept of a cast of six. But, uh, but they do, the authors, the original authors do give you permission to add an ensemble to the show if you would like. 
And so to go back um, a little bit, the first original Broadway show that you choreographed was Ain't Broadway Grand in the 90s. And so what did you learn from this experience at the time? Yeah, it was, um, again, yeah, kind of jumping into the, the fire. I had done a lot of choreography prior to that, so it wasn't like my first show to choreograph yeah. that I had had experience putting up some big shows. But again, with a Broadway show, you have a lot of time, um, so you're able to uh, have time on your side to experiment, to make changes. You have plenty of tech time. It's, uh, it's, it's a luxury when you, uh, it's costly, like we talked about earlier, it's very costly, but it's, it's a luxury to have a Broadway rehearsal schedule so that you can really take your time to, uh, to do things and create and make sure you get what you want on stage and you have time to rehearse and time to solve the problems when they arise. So, um, so yeah, I, I had a good time working on this. And then you always have pre-production also. You know, producers are always good about, uh, at least mine have always been good about making sure you have studio time up front to get in if you want to work with assistants. So it, it's a very methodical process that uh, that gives you safety right there. Then, then if you are jumping into something, it's a very quick process. When you have a quicker process, you kind of have to live with what you come up with because you don't have a lot of rehearsal hours even after you open. You know, unions have really strict rules about what you can do. So once you have an opening night, there's so many hours that you're allowed with the cast. So uh, the, the shorter the rehearsal time you have, the more you have to use your instincts to try to create what you know you're going to be happy with or can live with when you have a longer time and tech and uh, hours of uh, where you can call your cast in you can make changes adjustments throw out numbers put in new numbers cut numbers so that's what broadway offers you so it's not as daunting as what people might think when you have that time to to, to do the good work that you need to do and with um, a Broadway grant in particular, what do you think was the reason that it wasn't able to find as much success as some of the other shows that you've worked on? Oh, probably, you know, it always goes back to usually the storytelling. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, that, that's a show that had a very large star part. And uh, I think Mike Burston, who was wonderful in the role, I think he was known in a certain community but uh, that probably could have been a role that might have uh, needed a bigger name to draw the crowd in, particularly with a, an original show, when you have a title that's not going to mean something to somebody, or music, original score, which is also what makes musicals wonderful to work on when they're totally original. But sometimes when you have an original piece, it does help to have star wattage uh, to, to get somebody to buy tickets and to get them in there. Um, I've worked on several shows like that where after the fact that was talked about, like, uh, yeah. you know, we should have uh, taken more time or, or worked harder to try to get somebody involved. But often you do try, and then the answer keeps coming back, no, you know, a star is not available or not interested. So you don't just snap your fingers and get stars to come to Broadway, <laughs> that's for sure. And uh, I think sometimes general public thinks that that's easily done. Like, oh, who wouldn't want to go and play Broadway? But uh, it is, it's is—it's a lot of risk for a star, you know? When you get a star name to come in and do a live show, that's uh, putting themselves on the line, too. So its uh, it, it takes a lot of bravery yeah. for a, a big name in movies or television to come and put themselves on the line and uh, do live theater. 
but it's very different than being, as anybody knows, being able to reshoot a scene or go back and redo a take. Uh, you know, you're out there and you're bearing your soul and bearing your talent. So, so you can try to get a star, but that doesn't always happen. But uh, that that probably was one of the biggest things. It was just, just a lot of uh, unknown elements yeah. in that particular title, and uh, and then advertising. All of that it all plays into how that marketing campaign is, and often those are not done particularly well. I don't remember a lot about a Broadway Grand as far as that approach, but uh, I do know that. Um, Mitch Lee, who was the composer of the show, and I liked him enormously. He, he was another very similar David Merrick type of personality. And I had been warned about that. Uh, they said, oh, Mitch is tough. It can be tough. But again, I work pretty well with those people, and I uh, really liked him a lot. But he was uh, he was stubborn about a lot of things. Mitch was very stubborn about making changes, and he was very stubborn about uh, – he had his own set ideas about how to market the show, and I think a lot of people behind the scenes – probably had a tough time um, getting things to move. I, w I was quite shocked that he didn't want to push the uh, ensemble because we had, uh, we had I, it was either six or eight, I can't remember, maybe eight, of the most stunning females and wonderful dancers. They were not only great dancers, but they were great-looking ladies. And we kept thinking, you know, get these ladies out in promotional tours and show the world that uh, the the talent that we're having in this show. And and uh, but he was resistant to that, you know. And then, of course, not too far after that, Chicago. That's how their whole marketing campaign was: the revival of Champagne. They put those ladies and those guys out on those posters, and uh, they sold that. They sold that element of the show. And and of course, Chicago was a, a well-known show anyway, so that was in their favor too. But they really, and I thought, yeah, we kind of missed the boat here by not, because uh, we actually got a lot of comments about that, about the ensemble and the Broadway grant. I got several letters and uh, just saying what a remarkable group of gentlemen and, and ladies and women that there were in that ensemble. Again, because they were not only great dancers, but it was a terrific looking group of people that, uh, you know, that, that could have been an element to sell. But uh, for some reason, they, they chose not to or Mitch didn't didn't push that element of the show you know yeah a lot of things go into making a hit or making or not making a hit you know anybody yeah. that's worked behind the scenes in broadway will tell you it all has to kind of come together even though sometimes everything can be made perfectly uh every choice can be perfect and it still doesn't happen for whatever reasons but uh but it, it's that's that's the hard part i think about a show is i think anybody will tell you the marketing and how to handle the press is is a huge part of of what uh, can propel a show forward. Yeah, yeah. And to talk about uh, stars, two great stars who you worked with, although they were predominantly stage stars, were Elaine Stritch and uh, Nell Carter on Hello Dolly. And I'd love to ask you about them. Oh yeah, yeah. Again, uh, very happy memories there. Nell was my kind of lady because <laughs> we laughed about this. She didn't like to rehearse before like noon or one p.m. <laughs> And uh, I said, oh, listen, I'm with you there because I'm a late nighter. And uh, Nell was more about her voice, too, you know, and she had a family. She had kids and stuff like that. So uh, I love the fact that we would often rehearse, you know, one till nine, uh, 9 p.m. at night. And uh, so she I was on her side right away. 
Uh, again, a great lady, just a great star and a great lady to be around. And uh, and Elaine, too. Now, Elaine was a tough cookie, as anybody <laughs> yeah. knows. Anybody who knows Elaine Stritch and has worked with her or seen interviews, Elaine is Elaine. But uh, I had to, uh, of course, stage her one number, uh, Zip. And um, we got along famously, and, uh, and I knew how to really work with her and uh, communicate with her and uh, listen to her and deal with her. And in fact, uh, it was after we did Pal Joey together, she actually called me in on a, another thing that she was doing and I, oh. I couldn't do it because I was not in town. But uh, so, you know, when she calls you a second time, then you know you're uh, on her team <laughs> and then you know that she uh, that she knows how to get along with you. But, but no, she, but she is certainly a, a very tough personality. But uh, but again, I like those challenges. And um, my degree, uh, I don't know if you read in any bio, my degree in college was in psychology and communications. Oh. And uh, and I have a teaching degree. But um, but I've always, uh, that was kind of a, a background that I was always interested in. And I still read about a lot of when I read books and articles. I'm always fascinated by that element of life. And, and I think it probably served me well, you know, yeah. taking four years of my education to study communications and to study that kind of uh, element of life, uh, I've had to uh, maneuver and use it with difficult personalities. And when you go into meetings and you're all around a table, it's. Uh, uh, I've always said that my I, I chose a good field in my college degree to uh, to choose to study uh, because I've used it a lot in my industry and and dealing with uh, some some tricky personalities. Yeah. yeah. And um, I don't want to uh, keep you for too long, but I would love to talk about uh, White Christmas, which is one of your most famous projects. And so how did the idea for this first happen? Well, that I got the call actually from Walter Bobby. Uh, the show had been done down at St. Louis Muni. I think that's where they first tried it out. And uh, it was with a different creative team at the time. Um, and so somehow it ended up in Walter's lap. And so then uh, I got a call one night. Uh, I mean, I knew who he was, of course, in his work. But he called me on the phone, and, and we talked about it. And then I uh, had a meeting with him. And uh, that's how it came to be. But I, I don't really know how the, the actual stage play happened uh, uh, first down at St. Louis Muni. But um, then Walter brought in a whole new team with it and then uh, just went through the whole process of having meetings after meetings and deciding what changes to make from the St. Louis Muni. Because uh, I, I think they based it on that script, even though an, uh, a, a co-book writer also came in and joined what script was already there. So it was just, again, hashing out amongst the teams, what numbers do we want, what do we want to uh, retain uh, from the St. Louis Muni version. And then it's, it, it kind of went forward from there. And Walter was the helm of it, so he was a great leader and able to pull together the team that he wanted and, uh, you know, meetings with costumer and set designers and, and all of that, you know, it's just, uh, that's how it unfolds. Uh, and it really does help when the person in charge, uh, both producing and directing, know what they're doing and have a great uh, sense of decorum and know how to organize meetings. And, and Kevin McCollum in the producing office was wonderful. Um, he, everybody kept saying when we went out of town the first time, to San Francisco to try it out. Everybody was anxious to move it in. Like, move it in, move it in. And Kevin said, just be patient, be patient. I have a plan. And uh, and he did. He really did have a plan in place of how he wanted to treat this new show, this new version of the show. And uh, 
and he he was wonderful to work with and and he really did uh he was very methodical about when to bring it into broadway and uh how to handle all of that element of it so yeah it was it was handled very carefully and that was a good lesson to watch that uh you don't have to always be in a rush you know you can sometimes take your time and just just trust that it's going to happen in the way and in the timing that it needs to and the important thing is to make sure the product is protected, you know, particularly a title like White Christmas, which was so beloved. I didn't quite know that, Charles, when I uh, was asked to do the project. My reference was to the 1942 Holiday Inn. That was my favorite movie. I knew the 1954 movie, but everything that I loved was 1942, Holiday Inn with Fred and Bing. And so uh, when I... When the word got out that it was being transferred to the stage and it was going to be based on the 1954 movie, I was quite surprised how many people came up to me and said, oh, it's my favorite holiday movie of all times. So that was kind of an eye opener. And then I thought, OK, we're, we really have to deliver the goods. This is that's the challenge when you take a movie musical that's very famous. Yeah. You have to. Uh, you have to make the changes that are needed for the stage because you can't just transfer a movie to the stage. It's got to be most movie musicals don't have a score that's big enough. Um, when you look at a movie musical, uh, often you have to augment the score with extra songs to flush it out for the stage. But then when it's a really beloved title, you you really have to make sure you're delivering a stage vehicle that also uh, satisfies the audience that's coming in to watch something that they know so well. Yeah. So it's kind of a double challenge, but, uh, but yeah, it was handled very, very carefully with White Christmas. And so, uh, I was very pleased about that. And it was interesting to watch Kevin's process, Kevin McCollum's process of handling the show so carefully and protecting the title and knowing how each year to keep it moving forward. And um, another uh, famous movie musical that you worked on for the stage at one point was Un American in Paris with uh, Harry Groner and others. And so how did you sort of go about bringing that one to the stage? Yeah, that's that's interesting. When you see the title American in Paris, you think it's going to be the movie. What Ken Ludwig done was he wrote a very clever piece and it was really a prequel to American oh. in Paris. <laughs> so the whole plot took place and the, the show ended with the character of going to make the movie American in Paris. So uh, I think when people read about that production down at the Alley Theater, they think, oh, it was, uh, and it was uh, the first attempt to put American in Paris on stage. But it really wasn't. It, it really had nothing to do with the American in Paris movie. So it, it, it truly was an original, an original scenario. And then they added that they, they put in all the Gershwin songs. And some of them uh, did appear in America in Paris. But then there were a lot of uh, Gershwin songs that were not in that movie either. But I, yeah, I always have to qualify that when anybody asks me about America in Paris. I go, yeah, it had the title, but it was it had nothing to do with the America in Paris movie that ended up on stage ultimately in, on Broadway. That was the movie, you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's a good question for you to ask because you made that assumption, too, that yes, it was yes. uh, an attempt to put American in Paris on stage. But it was we called it a prequel. It was a prequel to American in Paris. And, but I think, you know, again, that's a marketing thing. I think a lot of people were probably very confused by that. Yeah. They probably came to the Alley Theater thinking they were going to see a movie and then they watched the musical unfold and it had nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> yeah. And so to go back to uh, White Christmas, it premiered on Broadway in 2008 and then came back to Broadway in 2009. And so was the original idea to do it every year on Broadway? 
No, no. It was really one of those things where they knew the first year it would do really well, and it was. It was a huge hit. And then the second year did well, but not as big as the first year because people had seen it. Um, and then, of course, the Christmas time, you're always competing with Radio City, and there's a lot going on at the holidays in New York with uh, uh, the Nutcracker at uh, New York City Ballet and all sorts of things. So, um, so no, the plan was always just to bring it in basically once. I, I don't even think they probably thought that it would come back the second year, but the theater opened up again, so Kevin wanted to bring it in the second time. But it was really um, after Broadway that it kept touring, and, and it showed no signs of stopping. We would we would have been running the next, last two years. If uh, if if COVID hadn't hit us, so uh, yeah. it, it's one of those titles again that has always done well on the road. And uh, New York, of course, also gave it that cachet of being stamped having played Broadway. But it was doing well even the three years before. There were there were two years where we had three simultaneous companies out all at the same time. That was. <laughs> That was challenging to do, and that was exciting period where we had two full floors down at 890 Broadway, the old Michael Bennett Studios, and three companies were rehearsing at once. And uh, I think that happened two uh, two years in a row, I believe, we had three companies. Um, and then a, com- then a couple times it was two companies, and then ultimately it settled into one company that would tour each year. And... Uh, and it's done well, and it, and uh, I hope it does go back out again because it's one of those titles that people look forward to seeing. And uh, and we found that we could even repeat cities after so many years; they could take it back because the the promoters wanted it. So it's done a lot. I, I get reports of everywhere it's done, and it's being done uh, across the country this year. There's oh quite a goodness. few productions. There's a tour in the UK that's out. Our producers just thought, again, it was a little too risky yeah. to uh, to mount the show because, uh, again, a, a first-class tour is very expensive to put out. It's a, it's a big show, and it costs a lot of money to get it up and rolling. And um, so I think, uh, and now with who knows what's happening with this new variant, I watch the news every night, and we're kind of almost back to square one in some ways with yeah. countries shutting down and everybody being a little bit on pins and needles about, okay, are the vaccines going to work? Are they not going to work? And what's the future here? So I've been thinking a lot about that. Like, uh, okay, we're up and running again, finally, but uh, what is the prognosis? Um, I know there has been some COVID cases break out amongst casts and things have had to shut down. And, uh, you know, we're just kind of living in still very tentative times with everybody, whether it be it's show business or be it public schools or whatever, whenever there's large groups of people, um, every attention has to be paid. Uh, you know, if we're smart, if we're smart, we'll learn from the last 18 months and try to, uh, learn our lessons and, and, and nip things in the bud as best one can. But, um, yeah, so I don't think anybody quite knows what's to come right now, but we just move forward day to day. That's all anybody can do and, and do the best you can to stay healthy and stay on top of everything and keep things moving. Yeah. Yeah. And my very last question that I'd love to ask you is, with such a long and legendary career in the theater, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out as a dancer or as a choreographer? Well, you have to do you have to try what you want to do. You know, I've always said that you can uh, you can always try. And then if you decide it's not for you and you want to go back to school and do something differently or move back to another area, 
Um, but to uh, have a thought of doing something and never try, sometimes you can then look back on your life and go, darn, you know, if I had only just done it or tried it or whatever. And I know a lot of people who have done that. I know both. I know people who have resisted it and not followed their dream. And then I know people who have followed their dream and then done quite well or followed their dream and then maybe not had such a great time with it and decided to do something differently. And uh, so I, that's my first thing is if you have a passion, try finding a way to do it. And it doesn't necessarily mean coming to New York. You know, there's ways to explore your passion in many, many cities and many, uh, many other ways. Um, but uh, that and that, but if you are going to try and really venture out and try to have a, a career on stage, then my other advice is never stop learning is just to try to uh, take what you have, bring it, and try to just immerse yourself always. I still take class. I work out every day because I still perform occasionally when something's age-appropriate. You probably read that uh, a while back, Karen Zim and I did Mom and Pop Dolan yes, in on, you. your, uh, on Your Toes. Uh, Warren Carlyle uh, picked us to, to play the mother and father. And it was so great, number one, to be reunited with Karen on stage. But to go back and then uh, kind of, you know, do those chops again. So, but again, if you're going to uh, to present yourself in front of an audience, no matter how old you are, then you have to be ready when that opportunity might knock at your door. So uh, when they did that revival of Follies quite a while ago, not the last one, but the one prior to that, uh, March Champion was in it, Donald Sadler was in it. There were quite a few people that were way, way up there in years. And I thought, what a wonderful opportunity when those calls went out for them to come and do these cameo roles and these numbers. And, you know, they were ready. They were ready for it. Marge never stopped dancing. She and Donald, there was a, there's a wonderful documentary about them that they made that was uh, nominated for an Academy Award a couple years ago where they uh, they would meet and get into a studio and they would practice their ballroom moves. And uh, it's a wonderful piece of film. Um, you would enjoy it if you've never oh, seen it. Uh, yeah. But that's my advice is you just keep you keep moving and you keep uh, you keep your instrument in shape and you just constantly try to keep learning. You see as much as you can. I'm a big reader of biographies and autobiographies. So I think it's important to uh, to read about people that you admire, to certainly yeah. see their work. It's all available on YouTube. To uh, That's what I try to teach my students. It's just uh, it's fun. It's fine to have a dream. It's fine to have a goal, but just constantly be a student. And it, it served me well. And I still look at myself as a student. I, I, I just constantly think of myself as a student. And I, I get very excited when I learn something new or something new happens to me or a challenge that I overcome. And uh, I go, wow, you know, it's uh, I'm still out there having things that can be taught me. And it, uh, I find it very exciting to uh, to learn new things and to read about things. Yeah. So that's my advice is just uh, if you really want to stay on the track, Somebody once told me, and this is also a, a kind of a succinct phrase, that as long as you love the process, you will stay relatively involved and hopefully content and, and fairly happy. If you only want to judge yourself by the results of getting a job or being on stage, uh, it's a slippery slope because yeah. it's highly competitive, as you know, and uh, there's not a lot of jobs, particularly in tough times. But I thought that was a very good way of putting it. If you like the process of getting to your goal, you will stay interested. And I think that's probably served me uh, because I do love taking class and I love I love exercising. I love working out. And uh, 
so it, it kind of keeps me involved, even if I'm not working on a project. I still feel like I'm in touch with myself, and uh, you know, moving to music, having music on, it's uh, it all feeds into that art form. So I like that word, the process. The process of getting there can kind of keep you on track. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been so inspirational to talk to you, and thank you for sharing so many great shows with us. I thank you, Charles. This has been a delight to talk to you. And are you uh, are you aiming on having a career? I was thinking about that when I knew I was going to be talking with you. Oh. Are you uh, heading to? Are you thinking about college, majoring in it, or um, what? What is your What is your interest in the business besides writing and doing podcasts right now? Are you a performer? Um, I have done a a little performing at my school and places like that. But what I've really wanted to do is to be a director, like like you are when I when I'm older. Okay. Okay, so then you're uh, you're thinking then about the future of schools and then how you can learn that craft and uh, and all of that because there's a lot of a lot of ways now to pursue a directing career. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, that's that's exciting. I think at your age, knowing that that's where you want to end up and what you are, that will be an incredible guidepost to you. As opposed to discovering it later on in life, you you're you're going in knowing that this at this point this is where you think you want to land. So you can then look at all sorts of ways to uh, to learn that craft and achieve that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by another of Broadway's most preeminent choreographer directors, the great Joanne M. Hunter. During the 2016 season, she spearheaded both Disaster and School of Rock, and her other Broadway credits as a choreographer include On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, All Shook Up, The Wedding Singer, Curtains, and more. She also worked on the regional production of The Nutty Professor, on Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cinderella in London, and her forthcoming projects include Super You and Love Life at Encores. In her previous career as a dancer, among her myriad credits, are Kiss Me Kate, Steel Pier, Thou Shalt Not, Chicago, Damn Yankees, Miss Saigon, and more. In one of her most in-depth conversations to date, she reveals all about life as a Broadway choreographer and dancer, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.